Do you ever get bored reading the Bible? Or, or not, maybe not so much bored, it's just if you read the same passage a lot as we do uh, in the church where we follow the lectionary, it's easy to, I find, to let it sort of go through my brain without really paying attention because I've read it before. I often, if I'm reading theology books and they quote a great chunk of scripture, I often just miss that bit because I already know it. It's not a good way to read. In fact, it's been a problem for many centuries. In the Middle Ages, uh, monks and, and other thoughtful people came up with a thing called the Lectio Divina, or divine reading. And it's a, a way of rereading the Bible so that it comes alive for you. Uh, basically, you read it three times, quietly to yourself. And there, there are lots of different ways of doing it, but it's a way of really trying to imagine yourself into the text. And it's a way of re-enlivening a piece of text that you haven't read deeply for a long time. So it's often been a problem, and I think it was a problem for the writer of this gospel, John's gospel. The other gospels had been around for a couple of decades by now. Um, We don't know how how much the author of John's gospel had access to Matthew, Mark and Luke, but quite must have been some and access to other texts that were around and the author was living in a very multicultural society just as we are today uh, there was a lot of in his community a lot of people with a good strong Jewish roots in other words they read the Torah what we call or the rest of what we call the Old Testament um, or the Hebrew scriptures they read that a lot, they understood much of it, and they talked about it a lot. They were also heavily influenced by the culture of the Greeks, which had moved into this part of the world over the last few hundred years. And uh, there were different ways of thinking about the future, about the past, about the present, and about how things are the way they are. So you want to write yourself a gospel. The other gospels are there. So you start, where do you begin? Well, you begin, as Carl Sagan said, you might remember this if you were here Christmas Eve, it was on the wall just before we read the text that Richard read to us as part of our Christmas story. It's not normally read as a Christmas text, but it is one because it's an origin story. Carl Sagan said this, If you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe. Sagan was one of the great cosmologists of the 20th century. Luke's Christmas story focused on Mary and on the possibility of the turnover of the world and of justice and of the shepherds and peace on earth. Matthew, the embrace of other faiths through the uh, the coming of the three or the 5,000, we don't know how many wise people, uh, and the uh, turmoil of the time around it and the, the journey of God through that. John begins this way. And of course he begins, like any good Jew, with the words, which is slightly different in the text that, as Richard read it, but in the beginning, which anybody who's ever read anything in the Hebrew Scriptures knows, that's the very first words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning was... Well, what do you say then? The author of John's Gospel decides to use the word logos, which is a word in Greek that was in use in conversation and in debate and in theoretical and theological and philosophical thinking all through the world in which he lived. 
The problem is, for us, of course, we don't know exactly what it means. It's like a lot of words where they become part of a conversation. They can mean different things to different people and they take a long time to kind of distill. A word that we use a lot in our culture at the present time is the word spirituality. We meet, I meet lots of people who tell me that they're spiritual, but they're not religious. Now, I'm not quite sure what they mean by either of those two words, because they can have all kinds of meanings. And, but they're part of the, the debate that's going on, part of the conversation. So if you ask somebody over a beer or a coffee, tell me something about your spirituality. You would get all kinds of different responses because the word means all kinds of different things. It's, but it's, it's, a, it's a live and living word. Logos was the same kind of word. So it wasn't just plucked out of the air. It was chosen by this author to say, here's a couple of things I need to do. One is I need to upend people's conventional thinking about how these things work. He might have needed to upend the conventional thinking of the people who'd read the Gospels of Matthew and Luke particularly. Because Mark doesn't say much at all about the beginnings of Jesus' life. But Matthew and, and Luke do. And he may have wanted to upend that with a completely different way of thinking about it. Not that those were wrong, but that, that we needed to refresh that, to rethink it, to upset our thinking so that we look at it and go, oh, wait a minute, there's a whole other way of thinking about this that I hadn't paid attention to. And the culture he was in was debating this stuff all the time. What is the essence of life? Where does it come from? Um, what's real and what's not real? Is the is the heart, the essence of life in the heart, is the term we use? Is it in the stomach? That was a, a big part of the debate. Um, is there a, such a thing called a soul that's kind of attached to but detached, uh, detached from the body? Is, it, it, is there more uh, sort of an essence of a human being? These were live debates. Now we translate logos as word, which is a way of translating it. The problem is we've then thought that the word meant the Bible. But it's very clear that the word is not a text written down, but something much more living. One way of understanding the word logos is that word is a kind of a combination of the thing being described and the very thing itself being present. So it's not an intellectual exercise. It's, it's a little bit like talking about saying the word elephant and immediately you know the idea of an elephant comes into your mind and and it's it's big and it's um it kind of takes over all the space and it's kind of changes the experience uh if there was an actual elephant here now it would sort of change everything wouldn't it because they're, they're kind of they're so unbelievably huge and when you get to see one in the zoo they're, they always surprise me as just how extraordinary they are how, and how um, graceful they appear to be. And they just... So the word becomes something much more than just the idea. It becomes the very thing alive in itself. That's a kind of a way we could understand the word logos. People have written about this forever. In fact, there are whole books just on that word logos what it means, where it came from, the way it was used, 
um, it was used by a lot of philosophers, some Jewish philosophers, some Greek philosophers. There was a school of studying the idea of Logos in the city of Alexandria, uh, and a, a, a Jewish philosopher called Philo wrote a, a bit about it. And so there's, you could, you know, you could do a couple of PhDs on this, no trouble at all, and still not exhausted. But other ways that people have said we could use this word, uh, we could translate this word, would be instead of saying, um, in the beginning was the word, we could say, in the beginning was the idea, or in the beginning was the essence, or in the beginning was the purpose, or in the beginning was the meaning, the thought, the blueprint other people have used. Just the idea of something beyond just a word spoken. The one I'm kind of most attached to at the moment, and these things change in our thinking all the time, is that in the beginning was the energy. It's not very poetic, but it kind of gets to something. Because we know that the world, as hard and as solid as it appears to be to us, is mostly nothing. You, Your body is made up of 99.9999999% empty space. That's how many nines? It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight nines after 99. There's not much of you at all. Mostly you're empty space. Most of the world is empty space. Most of the universe is. What appears to be solid is not. That, on the wall, is the sun the most important star in the universe, according to us, is what keeps us alive. It's mostly empty space, it's gas. There's very little solid in it at all. It's like the world is made of energy, not of stuff. You know when you uh, put your hand under a hand dryer after you've washed your hands in the bathroom or the toilet, some of the commercial ones are really strong, aren't they? And you put your hand under it and, and you can feel it pushing against you. Now, you know there's nothing there, but it feels almost solid, almost as if you could grab that sort of lump of air and take it away with you. That's the kind of experience we're actually having when we're sitting on these things, when we're poking ourselves, when we're touching each other and hugging each other. And we feel like we're doing something really solid, but we're not. We're connecting with other energy. It turns out that it's the energy that stops you from collapsing into that tiny 0.999% of solid that's in you, which would probably be invisible to the human eye. There's almost nothing there. What's keeping you together and, and apart is that energy. The energy in the electron is, is forcing the vacuum out so that it feels like there's energy and the, uh, the gravity in the, in the universe and particularly in our experience of it is pushing us in like it's making it feel like we're solid but all of it is, is energy the energy of creation that began in the Big Bang is making you at every moment is making us at every moment we're being remade all the time Cells are dying very quickly. Your skin is regenerating itself about once a month. We're changing all the time. We know that. We know that the, the brain plasticity um, is telling us things we thought were not true, which is you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Turns out that's nonsense. Your brain is constantly malleable at every age and constantly available to find new ways of thinking and new ways of doing things and is doing that all the time. 
You are not a static entity. You, none of us here are the people we were, who, those of us who were here last week, the same people in any sense at all. We're completely dynamic and changing. In the beginning was the energy. In the beginning was the energy. And the energy was with God. And the energy was God. The energy was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through the energy. And without the energy, not one thing came into being. What has come into being is the, in the energy was life. And the life was the light of all people. Here's some homework. When you get home, dig out a Bible, look it up online, read that passage that Richard read to us with another word in there. I've just read it to you with the word energy in there because that's something that is making me rethink what it means to be me and what it means to be me connected with the universe and connected with God. But put in other words there, some of them that I've just mentioned before. Let it filter through you and imagine what the author of this gospel wants you to experience about the coming of God into the world in Christmas. The coming of God into the world in a human being. And the most exciting thing about John's Gospel is the constant insistence that that coming into the being in a human being is also the same coming into being of every human being. That is, you are the baby born at Christmas. You are the child growing up. You are the adult filled with the spirit, experience, energy of God. That's the radical story John wants to tell us at Christmas. In the beginning was the energy, and the energy was with God, and the energy was God. So be it.